Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Okay. Um, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Institute, we are an independent graduate school here in the nation's capital. We offer five master's degrees. We offer the first of its kind uh, professional doctoral program, and we offer 17 uh, certificates of graduate study on everything ranging from counterintelligence to strategic soft power. If you'd like to learn more about any of our programs, feel free to reach out to us at www.iwp.edu. My name is Frank Marlowe. I have the joy of being the Dean of Academics here at IWP. And it's my great pleasure to introduce today a scholar, a gentleman, a good friend, um, Dr. David Glancy. Uh, Dr. Glancy is a professional, a professor of strategy and statecraft at IWP, where he teaches classes on forecasting and, and political risk analysis, as well as classes on economic warfare, as well as and, and political warfare. Uh, he has taught uh, many places, including at National Defense University. And he's also served uh, at both the State Department and the Defense Department. Uh, David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Frank. Uh, pleasure to be here. Look forward to talking with you about this topic and then also engaging with the folks who have taken time to listen today and get their questions and uh, try to answer those the best that I can. Perfect. Um, I will, David, if this works for you, I think what we'll do is we'll start off talking a little bit about the current uh, uncertainty in the world today. Then I suggest we move into the, the geopolitical impacts and then later the geoeconomic impacts of the COVID crisis. And then we'll round out with a few questions. Does that sound, sound like a good plan? Great. Yep. Look forward to it. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. Well, then, um, obviously, uh, start off, there's a lot going on in the world today. That's kind of an obvious observation. Um, you might have seen the, the recent Council on Foreign Relations report that talks about how we are approaching what they call a moment of radical international uncertainty. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that's a little overblown. Um, we do have a high degree of uncertainty. We have the health crisis. We have an economic crisis. We have uh, also the current conflicts that are going on in the world. So, you know, the world hasn't stopped, even though we have these other major issues that we have to deal with. You know, just looking at the headlines today, you see, you know, India, China, North Korea, South Korea. Um, so the world hasn't stopped. But I do think there is a little bit of uh, some bias here where people are, I mean, it's a couple of things. We're getting a lot of data. We're getting more data and information than ever before. Um, and also, international communications increased. So we're hearing about things in far parts of the world that uh, we may not have heard about before, or at least that much detail. I think the fact too, that people are you know, focused, they're staying home, they're not going out as much, they're not having sports and other things to watch on TV, that you know, they're paying more attention to the news. And so you certainly have the perspective that everything's on fire, we're, uh, you know, the world's coming to an end, and um, and to some extent, you also have people who uh, make money and make a reputation by hyping the uncertainty and hyping the uh, challenges that are out there. 
um, and trying to portray things as worse than they are. I do think, you know, if you take a step back, take a step back from the headlines, you're going to be able to uh, see a little bit better picture. I think also taking into account history, um, some frameworks from the intelligence community, doing structured uh, analysis, and then also kind of an interdisciplinary approach, that that will help sort of illuminate what uh, we're dealing with um, as we go forward. And if I just could mention, you know, obviously the corona health crisis is terrible. It's taken, uh, you know, had a large toll on many people's lives. Um, by focusing on, and it's increasing in the U.S. and other parts of the world, even so at points. Um, so, you know, I don't want to minimize the personal toll that this is taking, the personal toll the economic side is taking. But I think it's important for because business leaders and political leaders are starting to think about what's coming next and having to plan for that. And I think instead of putting our head in the sand, it's important to start thinking about those in a serious way. Perfect. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you, I mean, obviously this sort of crisis is going to have, as, as we pointed out, both geopolitical and, and geoeconomic implications. Um, so in your view, what are the top takeaways from, wh of what, from where we are now and where are we heading, specifically in the realm of geopolitics? Thanks, Frank. Um, some of these observations and uh, the analysis is going to be not too controversial. Um, I think people, the first couple um, things that we actually know may be a little bit boring, but I think as we go along, um, there'll be some other insights that not everyone will agree with. Um, and look forward to questions about those from you and uh, people in the audience. So I think a good way to look at this is what are things that we know? What are things that we're you know, pretty much 100% certain about? What are things that are likely to happen? About 80% certainty. And then what are some of the bigger unknowns, some of the things with greater uncertainty that may influence how the world uh, evolves or what it looks like in the next two to five years on the geopolitical end? So first off, this isn't going to be very controversial. Uh, conflicts are going to continue. The, just because of the coronavirus, we're not going to have peace breaking out over the world. We're not going to solve the Israeli-Palestine conflict, the Sunni-Shia conflict, the U.S.-China competition conflict. Those aren't going away because of the crisis. Um, what happens and how those might be impacted, there's a little bit more uncertainty about that, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I think you'll probably agree that the world's going to continue, crises are going to continue going forward. Hard to argue with that. I mean, that's, uh, you're, you're playing it safe here, David. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, we're starting off on uh, hopefully pretty firm ground, and uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to get to some things that are a little bit more enlightening uh, as we move forward. You know, David, people are watching for something exciting here. Right now, this is... This okay, is, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a fairly uh, bolder statement that um, the crises are changing and have changed and are changing how and will change how countries view their vital national interests. Um, this is different than the 2008-2009 recession. That was primarily just on the economic sphere. Countries look to coordinate. Um, but this is something different. And I think countries are reassessing and it's going to have an impact on 
you know, what, how they view friends and allies and partners, um, what this means for their uh, domestic production. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, also, health security is going to be something that uh, played a minor role uh, for national security professionals for a long time. Um, there's been you know, more or less focus over the years, but it really hasn't been one of those high political issues that drove national security decision makers and thinkers to spend a lot of time on. Um, I can't imagine in the next you know, five years that this is going to drop off the radar. So, you know, how do we monitor? How do we test? What happens for an international response? That's going to impact um, how countries uh, deal with uh, one another. And then also it's going to impact trade uh, and things like that. I also think, you know, there's going to be, you know, it follows on a little bit that there's probably more nationalism and protectionism coming from that. So it's going to have some broader implications. In terms of things that may not be 100% certain about, but things that we can be pretty certain about. Um, I put this in the category there that the global distribution of power and the shift in the kind of the international alignment five years from now isn't going to look that much different than it does today. There may be some differences, but it's primarily going to be pretty set and close to where we have it today. When we talk about power in international affairs, it's often defined as the military capability combined with the economic uh, strength of a country plus the international alignment. And the international alignment would be, as you know, the uh, states that are friends and allies and you know, those that you can uh, count on to support your policies. And in my view, this isn't going to change much in the next, you know, especially the next two years, but even going out to the next five years. Um, the U.S. still is in a strong position. Um, China, uh, I mean, all the countries are going to take some economic hits, but I don't, don't see it shifting the balance uh, of international power that much in the next uh, two to five years, as I said. Um, Europe's still going to be there. Russia's still going to have nuclear weapons and be a thorn in everybody's side. Um, China and the U.S. are going to be competing, um, but it's not going to change the dynamics that much. Is that something, what do you think about that one? No, that's interesting. You know, I'm curious about something that you said there, and it, it, I jotted it down to ask at some point, but I'll, I'll ask that now. Uh, you're already seeing uh, when, the, when the conflict, when the, when the, when the COVID started spreading, um, and you saw the, the back and forth between the U.S. and China over responsibility for the disease, the delay in response, and so on and so forth. And you're seeing what is... Uh, the, through the early shots of a, a war of influence between uh, the U.S. and or the West more broadly and, and China. And, and you're now seeing China do things like talk about um, trying to get uh, other countries to, to praise the, the Chinese response in the Chinese way. Um, we're seeing reports of them using uh, the, the COVID crisis and not just the Chinese, but a number of states using the COVID crisis to um, justify greater monitoring of their own citizens as a way of, you know, sort of like, I, I couldn't help but think of terrorism after uh, 2001, right? After 9-11, every nation, every domestic uh, troublemaker was labeled a terrorist because that's how you could justify um, going after them. I'm wondering if there isn't a tendency now of doing the same sort of thing of 
whether it's apps being used to track people and so forth. And so I'm curious, how is how do you see that that piece of the, the competition going? Are we now seeing a case of competing views of the nature of civil society, control versus some level of freedom? Um, I think that's an interesting perspective. I think that's going to be um, a breakdown. And I, I, I do think authoritarian leaders, authoritarian um, states are going to use this crisis as an excuse to increase their grip on their citizens. Um, I think the Chinese are probably going to be helping with some of that. We've seen in the past that they've helped with uh, exporting technology for monitoring um, their own other citizens of other countries where they've done um, deals along with the Belt Road investments and things that they've, other uh, business deals they've done um, and aid that they've sent. It's also included technology companies that have strengthened the grip of some of these authoritarian leaders. Um, I do see this, the crisis and the multiple crises kind of accelerating some of the trends that we've been talking about and seeing uh, up until this point. Um, Robert Kagan, the uh, historian, and others talk about crises accelerating history and that things move up in terms of crises. World history, increase, sort of the pace increases. So I do see some of the challenges and some of the trends that were already in place before the crisis began uh, taking on even more, uh, moving more quickly forward. Um, part of this is, as you talked about, uh, China and China's sort of um, conflict with the world. Um, they've been more assertive in the last 10 years, especially. Um, you're seeing some pushback now. And you're seeing some lines drawn uh, that there's people and countries, leaders pushing back against um, some of China's political, economic um, and social activities. And so I think this is actually going to accelerate uh, the kind of dividing of the world into blocks between sort of the U.S. and China. And a lot of states aren't going to want to be caught up in that. But I do see that that competition is going to be increasing. Um, and, you know, the conflict with the U.S. Um, is also going to be increasing, but not just the U.S., other parts of the world. You saw um, Britain uh, changing its position pretty dramatically on relations with China um, in light of some of their uh, not only um, lack of transparency and response, um, but also pushing back on those that have questioned their veracity and whether or not um, they're responsible or how responsible they should be. So you're seeing uh, kind of a sharpening of both uh, Beijing's actions towards other parts of the world, um, and then also kind of a counterbalancing counterreaction. Um, whether how that uh, unfolds, we're going to have to see, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. But I do see that this is going to, um, the crises are going to accelerate and exacerbate tensions between the U.S. and China, and also China and the world. And some of that might be uh, depend, or the level of conflict might uh, change depending on who's president in the U.S. in January 2021. But I think the underlying uh, issues of conflict uh, between the U.S. and China aren't going to go away. Um, 
and again, I should mention that this is uh, conflict with the Chinese government and the U.S. government, not necessarily the people of China um, that the U.S. government has a problem with. Terrific. No, I think that's very interesting. Um, along those lines, uh, this goes along kind of with the um, increased competition conflict between the U.S. and China and China and other parts of the world. I do see political warfare and propaganda influence as being uh, sort of increasing and then also, you know, really here to stay and taking a prominent role. Um, the Chinese have been uh, very um, open about how they see broadcasting and international media and getting their story out. And they've really done a great job in uh, shaping international public opinion um, about China, what China is and uh, how it behaves. And as you have this increased competition, we're going to see uh, these instruments of statecraft being used more and more. Um, there's a Chinese dip diplomat that reportedly said that the competition conflict between the U.S. and China was going to be determined, the outcome was going to be determined by who has the most friends. I think that's a pretty astute comment and pretty reasonable. Um, I think the U.S. has a lot of tools it can use to, and also a lot of underlying strength in that competition for friends around the world. Um, but I also don't think the U.S. has uh, taken much, um, has done a lot to increase our position, increase our strength with allies and partners. Um, and this is, you know, we haven't been completely off the field, but we haven't done a lot. And we're sort of waking up to some of those challenges. The Russian interference in the election in 2016 helped awaken us a little bit. Congress, the administration, taking some small steps towards uh, being more assertive in these areas. Um, but I do think that's going to be an outcome or that's going to be um, something that is going to be have increased prominence in international affairs as the competition for friends um, increases. And, you know, sometimes uh, winning friends by uh, strategic corruption um, is a way to do this. It's not something the U.S does maybe has done in the past but it's something that the chinese have practiced and uh, the russians as well and i think that's you know really going to continue and misinformation disinformation is really um can be uh very effective in times of crisis and when you don't have a lot of good information um and there's lots of uncertainty You know, I couldn't help but notice there was a story that broke it was the last couple of days about the changing nature. You, you're speaking a lot about the Chinese, but you mentioned the, the Russian one as well. The, that the, the Russians are increasingly using, I might have been today's post about, the Russians are increasingly wasting less time making up their own stories and spending a lot more time looking through the, the fever swamps on the internet and pulling stuff that's already been written by Americans about fellow Americans and simply highlighting it, broadcasting it, re redistributing it. Is that something we're likely to see more of, do you think? Absolutely. Um, you know, why recreate the wheel um, to some extent? Uh, it's also really hard to create things that are viral. Um, so, you know, 
internet memes and uh, internet um, stories that take off and go viral, it's really hard to create those uh, out of um, whole cloth. And so taking things that have already been written, they're, you know, in American voices, they're, you know, likely to resonate. Um, it looks like it came from Americans. So I do think that's probably also something that um, is going to increase. The U.S. is getting some better at this. Um, tech companies are working uh, on this and to some extent with the U.S. government. Um, there was just a, last week, um, Twitter took down a large number of uh, accounts that were uh, related to China and Chinese disinformation and working to prop up China's image in the world. So, um, you know, the, there's efforts going on to counter this. But I just I really see that um, these actors are going to continue to do this and they're going to get more creative. Um, there was uh, news about end of last year that I believe it was, was before Ukrainian elections. Russians actually uh, Russian agents were um, renting out Facebook accounts from real people and distributing uh, misinformation, disinformation through that. So they weren't creating new accounts and trying to get followers and all of that, that takes time and energy and, you know, resources. Um, it's cheaper and easier to just rent a space for three months, six months from someone who's already done all that work, cultivating networks and friends. Um, they make a little bit of money. The Russians have, uh, you know, it's very hard to, especially if they don't change the tone a great deal. Um, it's hard to discern if that, you know, the information was coming from your friend or, associate or if it's coming from the Russian government. So um, I think that's, you know, these, the adversaries are going to continue to be creative. Um, it's a vulnerability for Americans, for open societies. Um, we need, you know, I think there's policy issues and then the analytics side as well. So it's, it's something that is going to probably, I think, increase and be here for quite a while. Um, I do think there's going to be um, increased, I mean, if we, are you, Good with that or do you want to yeah, no that's great um so moving on a little bit for some other things that i'm pretty sure about um there's going to be more international or more regional instability um the international community major actors are going to be distracted they're going to be looking internally um there's going to be less funding for international organizations to intervene um and you're going to see Regional actors, other states take advantage because the world's just distracted. Um, it's not as clear cut what you know the U.S. or European uh, actions might be to a conflict on their periphery. In the past, you probably could have uh, assessed or um, assumed they were going to take some action, but it's probably um, you know it's less likely and less certain how uh, major actors are gonna respond, which gives a free hand to other uh, actors um, taking advantage of the situation, mid-level powers. Um, there's also probably, when we get to the geoeconomics, this spills over a little bit, but um, more crime, more poverty, more migration, and that's gonna, and probably more destabilization internally of certain countries. So. Um, there may be others, neighbors that take advantage of that as well. So, um, 
don't mean to be too bleak in the, on this uh, Wednesday evening, but um, I think that's you know going to be an issue as well. That uh, you're going to see more conflict, um, crime, and migration um, as well. So when it comes to some of the uncertainties, some of the things I don't know for sure. Um, what's going to be the outcome of the U.S. election in a number of months? Um, I'm, I have a high, uh, can assess with a high degree of certainty that it's going to be a Republican or Democrat candidate is going to win. Um, I, if, you know, we mentioned earlier talking about things that are somewhat controversial, I think there's a, uh, very low, but not, uh, unthinkable, uh, probability that either one or two of the two presumptive nominees we have right now won't be on the ticket in um november uh they both are up there in health and could have health issues i hope not for either but that's as an analyst that's something to think about um and then also there are situations where i could see possibly um other events intervening um that might uh cause you know perhaps president trump to say I'm not going to win, so I'm not going to face it. So I'm going off back to Florida and enjoying life. So, you know, again, I don't think that, that that's a very uh, likely uh, situation, but I don't think that's out of the realm of possibilities as well. There. So, so that's one of the uncertainties um, that can, you know, how much international cooperation, what our domestic economic policies are, what international trade looks like. I think those are going to be, all be impacted by uh, whoever wins the election in November. That's also going to impact some of our relations with, uh, you know, China. How much we, how much conflict we have with them to some extent. Um, I do, there are underlying conditions that no matter who's president, um, we're going to have issues with China, and there's going to be conflict and competition. Um, but I don't know that. Uh, President Biden would have the same um, level of uh, conflict that we're seeing with as President Trump right now. So, so that's an uncertainty. Um, what happens with the European Union and European cohesion? Um, there was a lot of um, sort of nationalism and people shutting borders um, and keeping medical supplies, which shocked some leaders. Uh, in Europe, that that would happen um, when they built this community of cooperation and uh, sort of um, doing away to some extent with national borders and identity. Um, and there's some cooperation now on uh, economic issues that may help reinvigorate the union, but the longer term trends of uh, political issues with uh, between North and South, East and West. Are going to continue to be to hamper uh, full unity, and um, I think with the Russians and even possibly the Chinese trying to take advantage and uh, uh, of seams and issues and uh, take advantage of disagreements, that you could also have um, them pushing on some of the fissures as well. So um, that's uh, um, what I see there. Well, that's a lot to cover there. Uh, uh, let me, if, if it's all right, uh, yeah. to shift over to the other half of this, which is 
the, the geoeconomic side. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think there's some some things that are pretty clear um, that I'm sure you're going to point out to us uh, that are going to come regarding uh, on the geoeconomic side of the resulting of this. But I'd be curious to hear where you see how you see the global economy and the individual economies recovering. Yeah. No, thanks. And I um, didn't realize we had been talking, and especially I had been talking for quite so long. Um, time flies when you have uh, a lot to say, I guess. Um, well, it was all good, David. So you're all good. Okay. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, first off, and, and again, everybody's probably going to see this, that the, everyone in the world is taking an economic hit. There's a huge amount of wealth that's been destroyed in the last three months. And there's going to be even more economic disruption going forward. Um, just about every week, uh, every two weeks at least, um, there's major revisions on what the levels of unemployment are going to be, how much um, wealth has been sort of taken off the table. Um, so some of those, there's some uncertainty about what exactly the, how big the impact is going to be, but it's going to be a big impact. I do think the U.S. isn't out of the woods yet. Other countries around the world aren't out of the woods yet. Um, and we're going to see the economic uh, impact continuing through the next you know, two to five years even. Some countries that uh, are in Africa, um, places where you have long-term unemployment, that's gonna be a big long-term decrease in uh, their economic growth and their prosperity. So that's gonna be um, problematic because that's a given, you know, I think, again, unfortunately, that's gonna lead to more poverty. I mean, there were, some estimates early on that uh, 2 billion people might fall below the poverty line because of this crisis. We've, the world's done a great deal to come uh, make strides and help alleviating uh, the most uh, abject poverty, but that could be a backslide there. Um, and that's a problem. That's going to be, again, something we have to deal with. And that's, there's going to be follow-on issues after that. Um, countries that rely on tourism and remittances you know, people are moving about a little bit more. There's going to be some uh, makeup for tourists, you know, within countries, but you really aren't going to have, uh, I don't think, large-scale um, international travel for quite a while. And that's, you know, again, a lot of developing countries, a lot of countries that are, rely on tourism. Some of them, you know, 10, 20 percent of their GDP is based on tourism, and that's, you know, severely been hit. Um, the uh so those are i think you know for certain um less certain but still think that we have uh a lot of uh you know 80 90 percent uh, likelihood um again the trends are going to continue so you know things that were happening before the crisis it's going to continue down downward for those you know some trends um in europe this means uh, the economic stagnation that they were having. I can't see that, you know, them doing much better after this crisis um, than they were before. Um, debt. Debt's going to be a major issue for a lot of companies. Um, you know, it's important to uh, win the war, as some commentators have put it, put out the fire before you uh, worry about that. and. My own 
uh, assessment is the Congress has to do more probably and more sooner rather than later um, just to get through the crisis. But the implications from taking on more debt are going to be with us for a while. There's going to be some countries that are going to have debt crises. You're also uh, going to have less economic growth and less productivity. Countries are going to have to raise taxes because they're going to have to pay for some of that spending and borrowing. And also, unfortunately, the debt's going to be going towards kind of keeping us afloat instead of being uh, used and invested for additional prosperity. So, you know, instead of investing in R&D or education or other things that would help increase productivity, that would help increase our, you know, our growth, growth both in the U.S., but also in other areas around the world. Um, I think the developed countries have a better uh, chance of getting being less affected by this, but everybody's going to be affected pretty um, much on this. Um, it's also, you know, the, um, the long-term unemployment for some countries that could, you know, set them back 10, 15 years in their economic growth and development. So, and that, again, can lead to poverty, crime, transnational threats. Um, I think it's also pretty certain that economic nationalism is going to come to the fore. So, um, again, this was something that was sort of a trend before the crisis, uh, but it's being amplified and sped up. So supply lines are going to be onshore. They're going to be diversified a little bit more, brought closer to home. Um, you're going to have certain industries that are going to be um, moved to uh, nations um, and uh, sort of brought, uh, you know, there's talk about um, the pharmaceutical supply chain and how that and protective equipment and that the U.S. needs to be able to have that so that we're um, not, re you know, relying on other countries for that. So you're going to see more of that from everything from rare earth metals to uh, probably electronics and electronic components as well. Um, finally, about sort of things that we're certain about um, on the economic side. Developing countries, um, as I talked a little bit about, a lot of their um, development and diversification plans are going to be set back. Um, you know, everything from UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, um, countries that were trying to get ahead of things or get out of some of the morass that they've been in. Um, and diversified, they're going to be uh, set back as well. So um, that's going to be an issue. Um, on some of the uncertainties for the geoeconomic side, I think the biggest is um, what's going to happen with China's economy. Uh, China had debt issues, slower growth, demographic challenges before the crisis occurred. This is only going to increase those uh, issues. Um, I've been teaching internet or economic statecraft at IWP for seven years now. And every year that's been sort of one of the leading questions in the class. And it's, you know, seven years on and um, we still don't really know exactly how it's going to turn out, but it has implications for politics, economics, um, the world. And, you know, are they going to be able to continue to grow? Is there going to be growth at a lower level? 
or is there going to be some kind of what, harsher landing or even possibly an economic crash? Um, that's, those are all possible options um, in the next five years. Um, and we don't know and we can't trust the Chinese economic numbers. So that's another sort of level adds to the uncertainty there of what's really going on. Um, we can, you know, there's different firms and reports that make some estimates, but it's hard to really know exactly what's going on. Um, they certainly, you know, can impose uh, currency controls to keep money from leaving the country. They have so uh, the social credit score, as you know, to keep control of their population. Um, and they have a lot of reserves still, but how is that going to unfold is, I think, going to be the telling answer um, kind of for uh, the world, you know, not only the Chinese people um, who would be really hurt in a crisis, but, um, you know, is that going to put pressure on the government? So. Perfect. Well, uh, David, let me ask you a question based on some observations you made on the debt, the debt problem a lot of these countries are facing. Um, and this sounds a, a touch ghoulish, so uh, don't think less of me than you already do. Uh, when the market crashes, domestic markets crash, the, the individuals who, whether at best, are those who have a lot of cash that can scoop up cheap assets, right? You don't, you've got a lot of cash, you can buy distressed assets at, at, at a reduction on the price and, and turn a, a sizable profit, right? So, an analogy that can be taken to international uh, countries that are facing debt problems today. Do you worry, for example, you noted that China has substantial uh, reserves. Will this debt crisis that a lot of these developing nations um, face, is this going to increase the sort of debt trap that we've heard about the Chinese pulling on Sri Lankans and others? Is that something you worry about or is there other ways of countering that kind of uh, sort of predatory behavior? That's a really good question. Um, and there's two parts to it. One part is uh, sort of companies, sort of the private sector um, being put in disadvantageous positions. And I think the US and the Europeans and other countries have learned from the 2008, 2009 crisis where the Chinese who had money were able to come in and buy up companies and properties and things. Um, so you're actually having greater restrictions on Chinese investment in the private sector um, because of lessons learned from five, 10 years ago. And I think that's, and there's also been more scrutiny on Chinese uh, private sector acquisitions um, in the last five years. And that's, again, increasing and accelerating because of the crisis. Countries are saying, hey, wait a minute, we may have uh, strategic industries or companies that are at risk. Um, we need to shore them up or at least make sure that um, international competitors don't purchase those in kind of a fire sale atmosphere. So that's one aspect. And I think the world's doing, you know, we certainly can do better. The Europeans are you know, again, a little bit behind the ball on uh, reviewing as a whole um, Chinese investments. Uh, certain countries are taking the lead, um, but that's sort of one one hand. Um, the other side, China certainly, you know, can they do a lot with um, 
and they use their influence and propaganda to uh, highlight even little steps. So even some debt forgiveness, even if it's not a lot or doesn't help these countries a great deal, they can make a lot of uh, headlines out of that. So I think we're going to certainly see that. Over the last or since the last four years, most uh, studies I've seen have indicated that Chinese international investment, outward foreign direct investment has gone down. And I think this is something, you know, related to countries being more wary of Chinese activities, some more restrictions from, you know, the U.S. and Europeans, but also um, some of the, they are experiencing, I think it seems to be something of a cash crunch as well, and especially in terms of dollars and dollar debt. So, you know, the their ability to really take advantage, I think, was greater probably 10 years ago than it is today. Um, again, there's uncertainty with that because we don't know exactly what their books look like and how much internal debt and what they, um, so, you know, that that's problematic for the world. But, but it's something that, you know, I think the U.S. and our allies, if we were, um, well, on my analyst side, yes, it's something to be worried about. From my policy advisor, policymaker side, you know, it's also an opportunity for the U.S. and the West and some of the international institutions to step up and actually do more and to provide a counterbalance. Um, you know, the Trump administration did reorganize uh, USAID and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. They're doing some work with allies in Asia to do sort of joint investments. So I think those are positive steps, but you know, we. It's also an opportunity for U.S. policymakers, um, whether or not they take advantage of that, um, and even leaders of international institutions, the World Bank and such, um, whether or not they take advantage of that, we'll have to see. Okay. Well, um, if it's all right with you, David, I think I'd like to um, start throwing a couple of the questions from the audience your way. Will that work? Certainly. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, um, this is a this one. I wonder if you would be willing to discuss. Please please discuss calls to decouple from the global economy. Uh, we're seeing a lot of discussion of this in terms of the the, the aftermath of, of the COVID crisis. What's your thought on that? Um, it's not realistic. It's not going to benefit the U.S. I I, I think um, we have to have a bit more of a strategic approach to trade and how we and have a clear idea of how we interact with other countries. Um, but trying to recreate the 50s where um, you had, you know, many more people involved in manufacturing that we, you know, we were the engine to the world after World War II. I don't think that's a realistic or be actually in our interest. Um, it makes sense to have international trade. But, and I'm I'm certainly a big proponent of uh, free trade, but I also think we need to watch and be wary of, you know, critical industries, the supply, we, we need better understanding of the supply chain, supply lines, um, where things are actually manufactured. Um, and also, countries do take, you know, the U.S. is huge and a lot of the benefits of trade are small, but spread out over, you know, 100 million people. Whereas the some of the um, impact, harsher impacts of trade, 
affect certain industries and regions and cities and such. So, you know, we need to do more for, you know, retraining, probably helping people that are impact, adversely affected by trade and also holding countries account when there's um, significant uh, trade, when they're not opening, when they're not playing on the same playing field as the U.S., I guess is the best way to put it. So, you know, the Europeans pretty much play on an open playing field with the U.S. The Canadians do. The Chinese don't. So how do we try to push that, limit some of their trade with us so that uh, we're on a more reciprocal basis? Okay. Um, building on that, um, it seems to me if, you're, if you want to um, try to counterbalance this sort of behavior, you kind of have a, a choice to make. And I'm curious which way you, you think we're more, uh, more beneficial. Are we better off strengthening international institutions to sort of play that counterbalancing role? Um, or are we better off looking at, you know, for lack of a, a better phrase, coalitions of the willing, who, which way is, is more beneficial and which way is more likely in the long term to uh, put us in a better position vis-a-vis -vis our competition for influence with China? Wait a minute. You said they were only going to be softball questions. Um, no, I appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad I had a moment to think about it. Um, I really think that it's not an either or. I think, you know, we need to do both. And that's probably the best approach. And, you know, all countries are going to be resource constrained. You know, the U.S. is going to be resource constrained. Um, you know, after spending more to keep the economy going uh, this year and in the next few months. So we need to be smarter about that. We need to be more strategic. Um, international Investing in international institutions doesn't cost a lot, and there can be a lot of big benefits. Um, we don't always like the rulings on the WTO, but we've won a lot. And some of the things that we were ruled against, we should have been ruled against, um, many of them. So you know, the international, if we're actively engaged in international institutions and see them as a way to advance our interests, that can be a multiplier effect. There's certainly going to be situations and challenges where international organizations are, you know, going to only be effective on the margins and it's going to take a coalition of the will. So working with those countries that share your interests, that share um, your values, I think that's going to be really important. And you're seeing some of this. I mean, there's, um, you know, some talk of, uh, of five, the countries that are in the Five Eyes Intelligence Program working um, more closely on developing ways to respond to China. Um, you see the Brits leading an effort to bring together sort of 10 democracies to focus on 5G uh, research and technology and development to try to balance uh, what the Chinese have done with their with Huawei and some of their state-owned companies. So, so I think, you know, both are going to be needed. Um, and it's, you know, in the past, the U.S. has been able to walk and chew gum. Um, I hope in the future we're able to as well. Uh, and that's that'd be the best approach, I think. Okay, perfect. Um, here's another very interesting question. Uh, it doesn't directly so much tie to COVID, to the broader, um, the broader influence 
competition uh, that we're seeing between the US, China, Russia being involved as well. Uh, the current social unrest after the death of George Floyd is a big opportunity for Chinese and Russians to utilize in their active measures strategy. What would be your advice to counter their um, domestically or internationally? I mean, I think there, there, you know, I think there's you can break it down kind of from those two angles. Domestically, we certainly have challenges and problems and need to, you know, strengthen civil society here. Um, education, opportunities, you know, I think that's going to be important. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, we certainly have divisions in that they're going to be, they were played upon um, in the 2016 election by the Russians. Um, it's something, you know, adversaries don't have to create, you know, divisions or, or um, conflict within the country along you know, religious, uh, geographic, um, social, economic, uh, ethnic lines here. So they're easy-ish targets for groups to push on and exacerbate. I think any kind of international actors taking advantage of this situation domestically, while it's not unheard of, it pales in comparison to the amount of people on both sides that are inflaming the issues either for their beliefs or for profit or for just causing mayhem domestically. So I think, I think that our biggest adversary in uh, social cohesion in the U S is ourselves. And that's, you know, above my pay grade and to be able to fix and understand. Um, so, you know, we need to, we need to do better um, talking to ourselves and, and not, um, letting extremists on both sides or all sides um, domestically for our own citizens take, you know, kind of push us apart. Um, internationally, I think highlighting the progress we've made uh, in some of our uh, social, racial issues, um, but also talking, you know, honestly about them. We haven't solved it all. We do have issues. We do have problems. Um, and that's not a admitting weakness. That's not admitting failure. Being honest and open about who we are, you know, is, I think, you know, that's a key tenet for public diplomacy. Um, having a dialogue about, you know, what's going on in other countries. Um, you know, the, I've seen both the Chinese and Russians, you know, kind of highlighting, uh, some of our, you know, social tensions here in the U.S. I don't know how far that gets them um, internationally. So, you know, telling our story, being honest to, in our interactions and in our dialogue, um, I think being authentic and uh, honest is gets you a lot further than um, just the one-sided propaganda that some of these countries. I think we also have to unmask the, you know, propaganda of and disinformation from other countries. I think that's and the bad behavior of other countries. I think that's you know, being truthful about ourselves, but also being truthful about what other countries are like. And, um, you know, as much as we need to continue to improve in our, um, you know, racial and social challenges here in the U.S., China's putting Uyghurs in concentration camps, reportedly. And so, you know, there it's a whole magnitude different in um, sort of the societies and the freedoms and things. And so, Reminding people also, you know, 
who we are as a people and what we stand for as a country and what we've done to help improve the world. Um, and highlighting that, I think there's a, it's benefits the U.S. to make that contrast with these countries. Great. Um, this interesting question just came in. Um, and I'm going to try to rephrase it a little bit. Um, and it's, the, the premise is, as the U.S. And, and Europe begin to wise up to Chinese economic influence and sort of the debt trap diplomacy, do you think that's going to spark uh, an increase in proxy conflict uh, in emerging markets in Africa and Southeast Asia? If they can't have access via uh, economics and, and debt trap, are they going to resort to more kinetic options? And that's an interesting approach. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, I doubt it. I think kind of the era of gunboat diplomacy, opening markets, um, has kind of to some extent gone away or to a large extent gone away. Um, strategic graft, strategic corruption. Um, there's an article in Foreign Affairs, um, I believe it was, just came out about, you know, this idea of strategic corruption. I think that's, you know, a great term um, because and it's a lot easier to pay people off and to do deals. And, you know, if you can pay off a couple of leaders, um, that doesn't take the military, that doesn't take a huge, you know, a couple million dollars here and there can go a long way. Um, and that can shift the entire view of, uh, you know, countries. Um, you know, there's a country in Europe that received some aid from uh, China medical aid and assistance um, earlier this spring and their leadership I don't know what other deals may have been done, um, but their leadership has gone all in to call Xi, you know, not only a friend, but a brother, um, the China, you know, and there's the state media, uh, or most of the media has some funding from the state in this country. Um, they've been very pro China. So the country has gone, you know, has become pro China. They, um, even though the European Union has given this country a ton more aid than China, most people in the country think China is the largest aid donor. So countries like China can have a big impact in um, manipulating, having a malign influence with leaders and then also populations um, without having to resort to sending in the Marines or, um, you know, that that's... Um, and a lot of, I mean, these Russia and China, both and other countries with state owned enterprises or state aligned enterprises, there's a lot of opportunities to pay off people, um, through indirect deals, um, you know, sweetheart deals for friends of the leaders and things like that. So, um, because of the oil industry wealth in Russia and then also the state owned enterprises in China, those can be conduits for, um, and they're, you know, it's cheaper and easier and more efficient than having to send in the Marines. And, you know, thankfully, it's something the U.S. doesn't do. There's, you know, big prohibitions on U.S. companies doing bribery. Business leaders take that seriously. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen from U.S. companies or people, but um, it's not, uh, you know, something that the U.S. does. All right. Well, I think we're, we're running a little close. So I'd like to ask one sort of final question, um, if I might. Um, sure. You've done a lot of forecasting, right? And, and 
where I think a lot of people don't quite understand, quite frankly, how you do some of the things you do. But I wonder if you might be able to give the people who are listening today a little sense of how do you how do you do forecasting and how can you become a better forecaster? You seem to be doing a pretty good job of it. Sure, well, hopefully, we'll we'll check back in a year or five years and see uh, where we're at, maybe. But um, well, the nice um, thing, David, is if you if you we edit this, we'll just edit the parts that you got right and get rid of all. There you go. That that's always good. Yeah. Um, always appreciate that, Frank. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, people can always, I'm going to be teaching a class on forecasting and political risk uh, this fall at IWP. Um, that's a good start. Um, I do think studying forecasting uh, is important, um, understanding some of the techniques and understanding uh, what goes into it. Um, practicing is certainly important as well. Um, and then also holding yourself to account um, and understanding what you got right and what you got wrong. Um, Having structured approaches, uh, using different techniques, so looking at a problem or issue from a number of different perspectives help. Um, you know, there's uh, standard kind of foreign policy um, theories and international relations theories that can help inform. You know, unfortunately, there's no cookie cutter or follow the blocks uh, forecasting tool that's going to give you the one answer. Um, there's no computer models that can fully uh, encapsulate all the complexity and the, um, you know, the situation. Uh, it's impossible to, you know, have a computer forecast or a computer come up program, try to tell us how North Korea is going to respond to South Korea. But this is where good analysis, I think, can come in and fill that gap. We don't know exactly what the decisions are going to be made, but by looking at things through history, uh, theory, um, some other frameworks, doing it in a structured way, you can actually, I think, get to a pretty good understanding of the dynamics. And while you're never going to be 100%, I think it's also, um, by doing the analysis, you can set up some signposts or markers. Um, and some people talk about war you know, warning indicators. Um, you know, which way is a situation going to unfold? We're going to have more information um, a week from now and a month from now and a year from now about what the world's going to look like in 2025 than we do today. Um, so being able to take in that information and update your views. Um, one forecaster, uh, Ted Locke, talks about um, holding views lightly, um, holding strong views lightly. So, you know, be, uh, you know, be open to changing your mind, open to shifting position as uh, new information comes in. But then also, um, don't forget history. We, also, we often too much focus on what's happened today, what's happened in the last hour, when we really need to sometimes take a step back. And I think that's also important for good forecasting. Perfect. All right. Well, I think we're out of time. I'd like to thank everybody for attending today and look for additional events uh, on our web uh, on our website uh, in the future. All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you very much, Frank.